The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, you are indeed worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We thank you for the privilege of sitting and standing before you to lift that up to you. You are great, you are good, and you are ours. All by your kind grace, and we say thank you. And so now, Lord, we ask you for still more. Not just for what you've done for us in the past, we ask you to do more for us right now in this moment, to open up your word to us and teach us and grow us up not just in head, not just in, in knowledge attained so that we can write it down and understand it, but grow us up in, in actual heart-level appreciation of you and thankfulness. We open our eyes to see all the world around us and the good you have put in it for us and to see in that you. That's what we're ultimately looking for this morning. We're looking for you. And so please take your word and then take your world and use it by the power of your spirit to lift up yourself in the eyes of your church for your glory and for our good. Bring that about this morning, please, Lord. Pray for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. Many modern cars are equipped with a feature called a lane departure warning. Maybe you've got one of these in your car. The idea is that if you're driving the car forward, the vehicle has some way of sensing the boundaries of the lane you intend to be in, and it can also detect somehow when you're starting to veer out of that, inadvertently drift out from where you intend to be into maybe oncoming traffic or off the side of the road. I'm not a car engineer, but it seems that, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that the idea is that gradual drifting is not how people intentionally change lanes. So if you're moving slowly, you're probably unaware. And so it's going to sound a beep, some sort of an alarm in the car to wake you up. Hey, you're drifting, come back. Kind of like our passage does for us today in the book of 1 Timothy. It's clearly possible to change lanes, to change spiritual lanes without being aware of it and without really even meaning to. It's possible, it's always been reality, and it is dangerous. So God issues to us a warning of sorts, an alert about the possibility, and maybe an alert about the beginning of that reality in your life. The word that we're dealing with here this morning, the, the the spiritual word is apostasy, which is a big word that really just means the act of a person who at one point claimed to be a Christian believer, but then comes to reject the gospel message, to reject the Christian faith. Very often, such a departure starts as an unintentional drift. call that we should hear this morning in this passage, be alerted to, be, be aware of it. It happens. 
and we should be warned away from it, alerted to it and warned away from it. Especially in one particular way. The temptation to drift in how we see God. The temptation to drift towards, you might say, seeing God as stingy and severe. To seeing God as, if I can put it in my face, like this. Clenched jaw, severe, stingy. And the Christian faith then as one gigantic attempt to learn personally to live with being stingy and severe towards oneself so as to please the God who is stingy and severe. The religion of thou shall not. This is not the only way we're tempted to drift from God, of course, but, it, but it's one way, and it's maybe a, a, a way that's a little more common for people who were raised in the church, maybe even raised in a conservative and and careful and conscientious church that talks a lot about holiness, that wants to follow God, it's perhaps a little more common for people in that context to have a view of God that is severe. It's common for us on the inside, and, and probably it's probably pretty common for those on the outside, too, to look at God and to look at the Christian faith as this sort of an enterprise. God as a cosmic killjoy, as someone once said. God whose job it seems to be to keep me from enjoying anything. Hard to find that attractive. Very tempting to want to drift away from that into something else or never come to it in the first place. But thankfully, the good news is that it's not true. That's not who God is. The God who is the God of the Bible, our God, is the God who is good and who means to keep his people closely following him, not with restraints and prohibitions and, and chains and locks, but with joy. He means to draw us and, and fasten us behind him with joy, not with bonds. And that's a great thing. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Realizing this is, a, is a really important. It's a really helpful to keep us from wanting to drift away and to actually incline us to want to follow him, to realize the goodness of this God and the goodness of all that he gives us. And that's for us this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read the passage, verses 1 to 5, and then draw out two observations from it. This is 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4. Two observations, and here's the first. A warning. Be warned. Satan is at work to try to seduce people away from the faith. Be warned. 
Satan is at work to try to seduce people away from the faith. The context right before our passage, what we looked at last week, is a very positive one. It has this song, you'll note. If you look at your Bible, it has this indented section, which is, which is a verse. It's, it's a song singing about Jesus, who himself is the greatest wonder in the world. The mystery, unknown in the past, now made known, revealed in the flesh, as he came to accomplish the salvation of his people, a salvation that was witnessed by angels and by others, told everywhere, and then very last the very last couplet of chapter 3, believed and received everywhere. On earth and in heaven, as, as this Jesus triumphant is received into heaven and in glory sits down to reign in majesty, and people everywhere all over the earth are believing it. That's the end. Very positive note at the end of 3. Chapter 4, verse 1. However, contrast there. Yes, taken up in glory. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit expressly says something else, too, about these latter times, the time between the first and second coming of Jesus, in other words, right now. Spirit expressly alerts us to something sobering. Some will depart. He's not talking about people on the outside who don't believe. Ne never claim to. Don't, don't believe. He's talking about people on the inside already who leave. Now, let's quickly touch on one theological point so that we can then stop thinking about this theological point. Paul is not saying that the Holy Spirit says that some Christians will lose their salvation. The Bible is extremely clear. It is not possible for a genuine Christian, someone who has been born again into new life in Christ, to be unborn again and to die again back into old life. It's no more possible than a baby going back into the womb. Can't be. You can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved. If you have salvation, can't lose it. So he's not talking about that. Let's not get distracted by thinking about that theological point. Instead, we need to look at this and hear the warning that's actually here. The church community, he's writing to the church community. All the letters are written to the church community. He's writing to the, the church. The church community is a group of people who profess to be Christians, who say, I understand and I believe this Christian message. I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus in his cross. And all Paul and the Spirit, all Paul and the Holy Spirit are saying is that, of course, the great majority of people who say that actually are Christians. But not everybody. That's all he's saying. Not everybody is. So don't be shocked when some depart from the faith, from the true Christian message. Be ready for it. Be, be forewarned. Don't, don't be shocked by it. See that path and don't follow it. What's the path look like? Well, it's still in verse 1. Some will depart from the faith 
by devoting themselves, by listening to, by giving credence to, and then following deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, eventually, as we work through this, we'll see it comes around to human teachers, but it's really interesting to notice this first off. At the bottom level, this is a supernatural thing going on here. And maybe a little bit of a spooky supernatural thing. Spirits. Demons. They are real. Demons are behind this. Which means, ultimately, that Satan himself is behind this. When people veer away, drift away, and depart from the faith, behind that are the spirits of darkness. I don't know how that, that strikes you. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's, that's the truth. The Spirit is explaining that to us and, and alerting us to it. When we, when we find people, when we, we hear people, we know people perhaps who profess to believe the gospel of God's grace and then drift away, what happened there was that demons lured them and enticed them, laid out in front of them, and that's going on right now always. Dark spirits laying out in front of the church teachings that are false, that are not true, that are lies, trying to persuade people to listen to and then give credence to and then to live in pursuit of and to, to gradually drift away. Demons teach lies to people to lure them. How does that happen? Does the demon walk up to your door, and knock on the door and say, hello, I'm a demon. Can I take a few minutes to teach you some lies? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Now, we can read the New Testament about Jesus encountered this. We can read about demons personally engaged with other people, attacking them or afflicting them in some way. So it could be possible that some people have been lured away, have been enticed away by the personal, direct interaction of demons. Possible. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. He's got something else going on. These spirits and their deceptive demonic teaching, it all comes at people through people. Verse 2. It comes through the insincerity. Literally, the word there is hypocrisy. It comes through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. What a picture. Consider this person, what this, what this person looks like. He or she is a liar, not just mistaken, not just accidentally, inadvertently, well-intentioned, but, you know, wrong, unfortunately. Not that at all. This person knows and understands clearly the teaching of the Scripture, understands and knows clearly the doctrines of the church, and, of course, doesn't believe them, him or herself. 
but continues, here's why the word hypocrisy fits, continues to act like he or she believes them, to put up a front. Why? So that I don't get run out of here. I'm an undercover agent. I'm a deceiver. I've snuck into the midst. I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so I need to act like I'm a sheep. I need to deceptively, hypocritically maintain a standing, can, can get access and, and, and acquire influence because my whole goal is to lead people away from this. How satanic, how demonic. Deliberately misleading, playing a dangerous game of deception inside the church. Now he's not talking about people, again, on the outside who don't believe, who are outside the church and who say, clearly, I'm I'm not a part of this. Hypocritical deception is those inside the church. Maybe people in the local church or people in the church at large who run into them on the internet. We've got unique ability to do this today because we can access Christians all around the world. Somebody who pastors a gigantic church there, or who blogs over here, or writes there, or teaches there, we can gain access to them. They can gain access to us. Knowingly trying to push some teaching or some opinion or practice that's not true and is destructive of God's church. Doing that all on purpose, it raises a question, how do they live with themselves? How can they knowingly deceive like that? And it's because something else has happened already first. His or her, his or her conscience has become seared. Picture your conscience on the grill. Cauterized. All the nerve endings burned off, so you can't feel anything anymore. With a conscience like that, the person knows what's wrong but isn't phased by it and keeps on misleading and keeps on gaining influence so as to mislead further. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And he tells us this right here, not because of them, but to alert us about them and to warn us not to follow. Be on guard against such ones. They are out there. Don't fall for their deception and certainly guard yourself against them and don't become like them. A few habits are important. And if you think in this light, if you kind of take this passage and then move back, in in my Bible, it would be moved directly to the left. You end up in the elder section. And you say, oh, This is what elders are for, and this is why he wrote all these things about elders, because we need to guard the door of the eldership. We need to watch people, watch their character, because such, if you look closely, such, such a hypocritical facade, you may be able to see through the cracks, probably looking for pride probably looking for a resistance to 
the difficult requirements of the scriptures, probably looking for a desire to acquire a following, a desire to lead people, and a, an attitude that seems a little more about him or herself and a little less about humble submission to God and whatever God says. So we, we look at these characteristics and we say, we need to watch that. We need to watch that. The threat is real. When Paul talked to these Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, that's where he warned them about someone to rise from the midst of them. And so he tells them, watch. Watch lives and watch the scripture very closely. Because you've got to watch somebody's life, but then you also got to watch what, in fact, do you teach. And I'm going to stand and I'm going to listen to you, and you all should stand and listen to me like this. Listening with your own finger on your own text. I, I hear what Steve's saying. Yeah. Is that in the scripture? Is that in the scripture? What does the Bible say? We have to be on guard for the sake of the church and for the sake of all of us, on guard, watching the character and watching the teacher, watching the teachings of those that we would put in any position of leadership. For sure. But there's a little more here that we should think about because we should think not just about watching them ones, we should watch ourselves as well. There's something else important here. Paul says the first thing that fell in their falling was their conscience seared. And that's the fourth time he's mentioned conscience in this book so far. Conscience, we might say, is our own personal onboard lane departure warning. There's something in us. God made us all, made human beings all with something in us that knows, just knows from the get-go, basic right and wrong. And which then can be trained, taught, sharpened, sensitized, or it can be seared by repeatedly ignoring it. This conscience, it, this thing in us, it, it, it works hand in glove with the Holy Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Because every person has it. Every human being is born with it. It exists everywhere. It's, it's innate. It's formed as truth is taken in and agreed with and valued. And what it does in us is it produces a sense of unease. It produces a sense of good guilt. Of, of, of wise and helpful poking, self-condemning in a wise and helpful way. Mm, mm, you know better, that's... Mm. That kind of, the little buzzing that's going off inside of you, you begin to drift. Now, we all know that you can turn up the radio and you can't hear that annoying little beeping anymore. And in our cars, there's a button where you can turn off the lane departure warning. And frankly, I kind of want to sometimes because it's a little bit bothersome. You can suppress conscience. You can sear it. How? By ignoring it, by saying, no, I'm going to go anyway. 
by refusing to feed it truth and refusing to honor it and just, just overriding. But that's not wise. That's how you drop your conscience on the grill and sear it. You make yourself insensitive to the little things. And then the next thing becomes a little bit of a challenge. And you make yourself insensitive to that. And then the next thing becomes a little bit of a challenge. You make yourself insensitive and insensitive and insensitive. There's a danger there. And so, yes, indeed, we have to watch others. We have to watch those we put in positions of leadership and those we give ability to access to teaching opportunities. But we also have to watch ourselves. And the first and best way you watch yourself is watch your conscience. Tend to it. Feed it truth. Sit yourself humble before Jesus and obey even in the little things. I think probably for, for a lot of us, this is certainly a case for me, some of those little things have to do with media. How long do I linger on that television show? How long do I linger on that website? How long do I, how long do I, how long do I? I find there, immediately I know, ah, I hear the warning. And then I've got to face a decision. Come back or keep drifting. And if you keep drifting and keep drifting and keep drifting, watch out. Nobody intends to drive into a, a car head on. It happens accidentally for most people. Watch out. Guard the leadership and guard your own heart. Guard your conscience. That's the first point, a warning and an alert. This drifting, it exists, watch out for it. But we should also take note of what to watch out for, and that takes us to the second observation. Receive thankfully the good world we're given and the good God behind it. Receive thankfully the good world we're given and the good God behind it. And with this second observation, the passage takes a turn from general warning about apostasy and false teaching to some specific teachings that were false. They were faced there in the church. If we were to think for a minute about other books in the New Testament, we'd see some similarities, especially with Colossians. They think of the do not handle, do not taste, do not touch section there. Some similarities. This seems to be kind of common sort of stuff. Probably, probably present in our world too. So we're going to look at this. But as we do, I really want to invite you to think about these three verses in a way that kind of lets your mind run on towards marveling rejoicing at them. Because I think what we find here in, in 3, 4, 5 is something that is really sweet. Something that's, that's good for, for humankind, for all people, especially for those of us who believe. I've been thinking about this throughout this week and I have found this to be just 
neat. This is the God here who is astonishingly good. And he's the kind of God that we all actually really want. And if we think about it, we should be kind of like amazed. I mean, given who I am, amazed that this would be the God who is. This is, this is wonderful. So what I'm asking you to do is kind of like maybe a big shift here because the first few verses are kind of serious. Warning about demons. And then as we move from that into the teachings, where I want us to end up is, wow, God. So there's a movement there. Come with me, come with me. Satan would love to drive us away, to lure us away from this God, the one who's here. And he does so by teaching, verse 3, things like we should not marry and we should not partake of certain foods. These guys are saying, as Christian teachers, we're telling you, God forbids this, and so you must reject it. This is not teaching like Paul would, that, hey, you know, singleness is good. So maybe God would have you remain single. And it's not teaching like Paul would, Hey, you know, if eating this meat causes my brother to stumble, then in love for my brother, I'm going to go without. Not like that. Totally different. They're saying that God flat out forbids marriage and certain foods. And if you want to please him to become a follower of his, or if you already are a follower, to become a pleasing follower of his, then you also will reject these things for yourself. You won't handle them. You won't taste them. You won't touch them. That's what they're saying. Paul obviously is saying this teaching is false, it's wrong. Why is it? Well, for starters, teaching that focuses our mind and our attention on our own behaviors is right off dangerous. It's going to tend to take our focus off of Jesus and what he has done and put it onto me and what I have done. Satan would love to cause me to spend most of my time thinking about me and my behavior and little time thinking about Jesus and his work. So this kind of teaching is wrong for that reason, but Paul actually goes in a different direction. Notice he does not go into any particular explanation about what marriage is and why it's good and fine. And he doesn't talk about foods and meats offered to idols. He does that elsewhere in other places, but not here. He instead moves to the real issue, the bigger issue behind this problem here with this false teaching is that it denies the goodness of God and his creation. Think of it like this. If you're a kid with a parent who comes home from the grocery store one day with a tub of ice cream, what do you think? You think, ah, sweet, cookies and cream ice cream, my favorite. Don't touch that. That's not for you. Okay, well then, why is it here? That's for other kids. Okay, and then the parent serves the ice cream that Saturday to the neighbor kids who are over at your house to play, but still not to you. You get celery sticks. (laughs) They're good for you. They're healthy and they're good for you. And if that sort of thing happens a few times, you begin to wonder, 
what gives? If the ice cream is bad, if it's unhealthy, then why would you serve it to the other kids? Seems maybe like it's kind of cruel. But if on the other hand, the ice cream is good, and it sure seems like it is, why not serve it to me, your own kid? That also seems kind of cruel. Either way, I'm confused and disappointed. It sure seems to me like being your child is a life of celery sticks in an ice cream world. And I'm left kind of thinking that you are at least miserly and maybe cruel. Which is exactly what Satan wants us thinking about our God. You know, the things that seem so pleasant in life, that taste good, that feel like fun, God says no to. In fact, the only way to follow him is as one deprived, going without. You can press your nose against the glass and you can see how the other people in the world enjoy this life and this creation, but that's not for you. Of course, he's going to say that to you because he's going to say, this is good for you. Desirable things are all wrong and bad, so turn away from and reject the things of earth because God, don't you know it, he is miserly and severe. He's the God of no, there is none for you. Don't touch that. Thou shalt not. It's the original lie. First slid in back in the garden. God's not for you. And he won't let you have that which is good. He denies you delight. He's not good. What an attractive vision of God, huh? Not, cleverly and wisely, not there is no God, but rather, oh, there is a God. He's just like this. Have fun with that. Paul attacks this deception head on in verse 3. The false teachers are forbidding what God created to be received with thanksgiving by everyone, but especially by believers. Especially by those who believe and by those who know the truth, seen in the very next verse. Do you know this truth, seen in the next verse? Get this, this is, this is for your enjoyment. Get this truth that everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. Everything. All things. And only Satan wants us to reject God's good created things. God wants us to receive them. God made the creation good. And in his glorious generosity, he gives it and means for it to be received. What a kind God. Seriously, what a kind God. He gives it to all of the world and especially to his own, to believers, to be received by us with thanksgiving. It says that twice. Received with thanksgiving. Received with thanksgiving. Implied a third time even in prayer. There is a proper way to receive all of the good that he's made with Bible-informed minds. It's made holy by the word of God. 
important qualifier here so that we don't misuse or misapply or misunderstand what God has given these good things for. The goodness that he's given to us and our receiving and using of it is governed by his good word. Indeed, we receive it with the word, word, but we receive it. It's made to be received with thanksgiving, not rejected, received with thankful hearts, praying, Lord, thank you. Lord, what a good gift. Lord, how kind and generous and thoughtful of you to see me in my need and provide this. Thanks. Again and again and again. God wants his good creation received by us in that way. Exclaiming the goodness of God. Thankful. So Christian, look around. Look around. Look at all of his good gifts to you, his great generosity. First and foremost, we, we have to say, first and foremost, he gave you Christ himself indeed, but we're talking about more than that. See his goodness in everything else in marriage and in relationships. Maybe today we think particularly about mothers or about children, things that he gave us in the past, things that he maybe still has or things he will give in the future. Food, bodies that work, food that can be eaten, food that you like, food that you can taste, food that is a pleasure to you. In your bodies, abilities and aptitudes and tendencies, and a creation that's all around, that's, that's beautiful that you can take in, and a world in which we live in which all of us together, using all of God's gifts and all of God's mental gifts and all of God's strength gifts, we make so many other things that are just marvelous. Thank you. Thank you. It's been said already today, what, what do we have that we didn't receive? Nothing. And we could also turn that phrase a little bit and say, and I've received a ton received a ton from him. Take it all in. Maybe today, a good Sabbath activity, a way for you to rest well today, would be to take a couple of minutes and, and try to write down some of that stuff. What do I have that I have received as good from him. Take a pencil and a piece of paper and start to write. Take it all in under the authority of the Bible, but take it in and receive the good things of earth. Don't reject them. And don't think that it's actually you know, more holy not, not to receive this, not to partake of this, not to use this, not to enjoy this. No, in fact, when you receive something thankful, what's going on there? When the parent brings home the ice cream and you think, wow, sweet cookies and cream. And you think for a second, you realize my parent, he is sort of saying something like, I know. I know that's your favorite. I was thinking about you at the grocery store. That's why I picked it out and brought it home and put it in your freezer. 
you realize then, I'm on the mind, I'm on the heart of my good father who wanted to give to me a good gift. Thank you. And that's not just about the ice cream anymore. That's about the heart of the Father that you see in the gift, but you're really not looking at the gift, you're looking through the gift at the Father who thought of you, who loved you, and who gave good to you. And because he first loved you and first gave good to you, what comes out of you is thankfulness and rejoicing in him and a love back to him. It's a sweet, brilliant package all designed and all created by God to bless us and gain honor for himself and cement us together and incite us never to veer off but to hold fast behind him because he is the one who is good. Brilliant. Brilliant. And that's the faith. Christian, you have no right to be dealt with like that. Because in the face of the God who was good, you said, not just accidentally, no, I'm going over. And God in his determination said, actually, no, you're not. You're coming back. He so wanted to do you good that he sent his son and dealt severely with him in your place to open up in himself fountains of gracious blessing to you and pour them out on you forever because all wrath and all enmity has been forever removed. He wanted to do you good and so he afflicted his own son in your place. And now forever and ever and ever the fact remains that a good God reigns over your life, doing you good in this vast world that for you is not the end, just the beginning. It's not the final word, it's just a foretaste. The abundant blessing is still to come. Taste and see a little bit of it now and know what that means is mountains of merciful, gracious good in your immediate future because your Father loves you and is good. That's awesome. Arm your mind, fill your conscience with that truth. It'll hold you from veering. Satan will constantly, constantly, constantly attempt to persuade you otherwise. No, he's not. No, it isn't. Look at this bad circumstance. And what you have to bring up there is, yeah, but. Look at the good he's given me in Christ and in Christ in the rest of the world. I know him. I'll trust him. And I'll hold fast behind him and follow him. This is the God who is good. Let's trust him and let's pray. Lord, you are so obviously, sweetly, wonderfully good to us in Christ. And I want to know that more. 
And I would ask for you to make each of us here, all of us here, know that more. Would you reinforce in our minds and, and lift up in front of our eyes clear evidence of your goodness, how everything you have made is good, and you want us to receive it thankfully. I'm asking you, Lord, for a supernatural work that is more powerful than the supernatural forces arrayed against us. A lion prowls the church looking for whom he may devour, but you are a lion killer, and you do that with joy. And so please, Lord, build the joy of your people by showing us your goodness. We trust that to you and ask and say thank you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.